This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Hey team, it's Buck. Uh, Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt Hour 2 today. Uh, Really appreciate you hanging out with me here and spending some time once again, as always, uh, with me talking about all the stuff that matters to us. I I think it's uh, well worth our time to, to get into a little bit of the latest information that's out there on the Islamic State and how it is conducting its attacks. There's been so much in the press in recent weeks with regard to the, uh, well, last week and change, uh, the travel ban. We've talked about the status of the, you know, it is a so-called ban in the sense that it's not really a ban. The problem, of course, is that the administration for whatever reason, uses the term ban. And so that certainly complicates matters. It's hard to defend them and say, well, it's not a ban, when they're then going out and saying, well, I mean, this is a ban. So I think we can all understand why that is at issue. Uh, So anyway, uh, there's been some new research done uh, looking into the way that ISIS conducts its attacks. Excellent piece that I would uh, commend to all of you. Not lone wolves after all. How ISIS guides world's terror plots from afar. It's in the New York Times by uh, Rukmini Kalamachi. I think she uh, she and I have actually had some exchanges recently on Twitter about the ban. Uh, she does very good research. She obviously writes the Times and has a more, uh, let's say, left Democrat perspective than I do, but her work is uh, factually very strong. And it's interesting as well, there's a few people that are quoted in the piece uh, from a, a couple of think tanks who are also friends and uh, friends of mine, associates of mine. So it, it felt like um, looking at all these names, looking at this research in ISIS, it's like, well, at least I'm in direct contact with some of the foremost ISIS researchers out there. That's, that's helpful for my uh, analytic purposes. So it goes into what you would call this piece in the Times, uh, what you would call the various ways that ISIS is involved in attack plotting, directed, enabled, and inspired. Uh, When they say inspired, what they mean is just that somebody has chosen on their own, without any direction or uh, direct contact, most notably with the Islamic State, that someone has decided that they will uh, go forward with an attack in solidarity with ISIS which, it should be noted, is an ISIS attack. And the Islamic State has said that this is something that they very much uh, believe in and and want to have happen. So this isn't going outside of the usual steps or anything like that. This is what ISIS wants. 
So inspired just means that someone wants to engage in an attack on behalf of the Islamic State without any direct contact and without anyone necessarily uh, trying to give them advice, assistance, help. San Bernardino, Orlando, and Istanbul are all examples of ISIS-inspired attacks. Enabled attacks and directed attacks involve some level of contact. Uh, when, you, when you look at what this piece talks about, uh, they're actually discussing uh, attacks where there are, um, there's not just direct contact with the Islamic State, but there is, in fact, assistance provided by the Islamic State. And they go into the details of a plot in uh, Hyderabad in India. And what they get into here is, is that, well, first of all, it had been the case for a number of years that, the, that ISIS claimed that the travel to Syria was a hijra. Hijra, that's Muhammad's journey uh, from Mecca to Medina. So he left Mecca to go to Medina. That's called the Hijra. And they're saying that this is to be like the prophet. You have to leave wherever you are and you have to go and travel to Syria and, and join ISIS in a very direct way. It's not enough to just uh, say that you, know, you want to engage in an attack. It's best for you to go to Syria itself and actually uh, become part of the Islamic State, the, the actual state. But that changed because they realized that it's uh, harder. It's harder to get there now. The security services have clamped down. And it is also, uh, when you look at this and you start to get an understanding of um, where ISIS has been most effective, battles uh, on, in the Syrian hinterlands and fighting between Assad, uh, Assad's thugs, uh, the uh, Shabiha, who were his, his militia, really, uh, sort of think of it like Assad's brown shirts and various ISIS elements in Syria or even in Iraq get much less attention for the cause, of course, than the Islamic State can get for itself with a mass casualty attack outside of its borders. So what you begin to see increasingly is the understanding that, one, it's hard to, it's gotten a lot harder to get to Syria. The border between uh, Turkey and Syria has received much more uh, security service attention than it did in the past. And on top of that, the uh, bang for the buck, so to speak, uh, the usage of or the deployment of fighters inside of Syria does not have the same impact on this struggle from the perspective of being a global jihadist as, as just engaging in an attack, especially if we're talking with someone in a major Western country who might already have citizenship, but anywhere in any non-ISIS, uh, ISIS-affiliated or ISIS-controlled portion of a country, there's going to be much more media attention for it. So they talk about this shift and how these cyber recruiters, which we've known about for some time, uh, there have been these cyber recruiters out there on the internet that are trying to find, uh, the term is always disaffected young men, they're disaffected. I think it's also worth pointing out that they are um, not... The, the, the one commonality they all have is, of course, a, a belief in Islam, that this is not just something that comes out of nowhere. Uh, that is a precondition for their jihadist mindset. You don't have any believing Buddhists who are running to Syria to fight for the Islamic State. But we've known about the cyber recruiters for quite a while, and 
there's a change though that they've from looking into the most recent some of the most recent cases recruitment just involves hey you know let, let's let's go back and forth here online and they're using apps uh, all these different encrypted chat apps as a means of communicating and there are just so many of them and they bounce around to different chat apps as well so it, it even if the security services are perhaps able to track one chat stream because they use various chat streams and there's all these different apps and they can all be encrypted in different ways, it's harder for security services to stay uh, on top of this issue. Especially when you get outside of the West, you get outside of America, the uh, level of sophistication that some of the Intel services that are supposed to look at this issue, the level of sophistication that they have is uh, much less than what we have here in America or in a major Western European country. So they bounce around on these various chat apps and that recruitment, we've talked about this before, that recruitment goes on and using just text and perhaps posting some YouTube videos and things along those lines. The difference here, though, is that what they've seen in the Hyderabad atta- uh, would-be attack is a, a very uh, key example of this, is that now you have uh, ISIS handlers who are enabling the attack directly. So in Hyderabad, they were told to go get, to go leave, bring money and go to this place at this time. And there'll be a bag by the side of the road near mile marker seven with guns in it. In a country like India that has very strict controls on guns. So these procurement networks have also popped up. And they are using individuals inside of ISIS controlled territory. They're using individuals who have native knowledge who are from the place and they've seen this now in a a variety of these attacks where they can link somebody up let's say in france with a native french speaking and with native knowledge of the area with us they call them really a a cyber coach let me just give you a little uh, segment of this piece here in northern france a pair of attackers who have been guided by an islamic state cyber coach slit the throat of an 85 year old priest and the pair had not known each other, and according to the investigative file, the handler introduced them, organizing for them to meet days before the attack. Intelligence records obtained by the Times revealed that the same handler in Syria, also guided by a group of young women who tried to also guided a group of young women who tried to blow up a car in front of the uh, Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. And there are investigations into Malaysia, Indonesia, and Bangladesh, also showing recruits in direct contact with the Islamic State handlers who were molding plots directly. End quote. So this is more than just, hey, you should go and try to fight for ISIS. That's recruitment. This is recruitment and then acting as a virtual handler, a handler, a term borrowed from uh, spy, tradecraft, uh, espionage. If you were working with the KGB, they would have somebody that would be meeting with you and telling you what they wanted you to get if you were a, a trader, if you were working as a spy for them, and that would be your handler. So these are virtual handlers in the sense that you're not meeting them face to face, but they're telling you online, go to the, pick this target, do surveillance in this manner. Here's how you get the guns you need. They also walk them through. And this is really only a matter of time before one of these attacks comes to fruition in a horrific way. Um, But they also walk them through the means of building bombs and where to get precursor chemicals for bombs and the different ways in which uh, they think that they can um, get 
more uh, or a greater number of casualties if they are able to more expertly build these bombs. The biggest uh, problem that they've had with these sorts of attacks so far is the buffoonery of many of the individuals who have been recruited in this way. That's the no- that is the number one issue. Um, what they've come up against is that these virtual handlers are giving good advice, oftentimes in the native language of the recruit, and knowing the terrain, the actual human terrain that he's operating in, if it's in France or if it's in India or whatever the country may be. In, in Indonesia, there was another case that they talk about in some detail here. And what they see is that these cyber planners who are operating... In Raqqa, so they have autonomy and they don't have to worry about the security services coming to pick them up because they they control the ground. And this, again, goes to earlier uh, discussions we've had on the show here about when I say a launch pad for jihad, there is something very different about having a virtual army in Internet cafes, although they're really just sort of Internet banks uh, set up in a place like Raqqa in Syria that have contact with the rest of the world and they don't have to worry about police or security services. That's different even than an active operational cell somewhere else in the world. There's a greater uh, level of threat that comes from that, and there are uh, bigger issues that you have to deal with because you can't rely on any local security service to come after them. So they, uh, they go into uh, these various plots, and here's the, the big takeaway from all this, is that you got a couple of things happening simultaneously. One is the model of the Islamic State and how it's trying to um, disrupt and, and attack in the West is in a period of flux right now. And as they have more pressure from forces arrayed against them on the ground in Iraq and Syria, this virtual model is going to become the primary model, I think. It already is happening. And this is a way for jihadists to link up from all over the world. This has been around for a while, but ISIS is perfecting the technique and using it with uh, much more uh, horrific results, unfortunately, for us here in the West and so and the rest of the world. So that will happen. And, and as they are squirting out of, as the bad guys squirt from Raqqa, from Mosul, from the surrounding environs, you'll see more of these kinds of plots. And the lethality of them could increase dramatically when you're talking about a recruiter who is able to both go into detail about the, the surrounding area and how you should do surveillance and all of that. Uh, there's some very obvious and serious concerns that attach to all of this in terms of the uh, increased effectiveness of the terrorist attack. So far, they have made mistakes with these, uh, but they're going to get better at it. And this is very hard to thwart. And these uh, the, the underlying theme here, of course, in the very start, is that these aren't really lone wolves, and to call them that in many cases is wrong. They are virtual. Uh, they are virtual fighters. Uh, they are attached. They're sort of adjunct, uh, adjunct jihadists who are attached to the caliphate in, in Iraq and Syria through the web. In the same way that people can you know, work from home. These are terrorists from home, if you will. And there's then when they look into these plots, almost a dozen of them, major ones, have had direction as well. So it's not just the, hey, go fight for, or, hey, go do an attack for ISIS. It's 
go do an attack. Here's where you get the guns. Here's where you get the explosives. This is what you should attack. Here's how you avoid detection. That's a level beyond what you've seen in, in many previous uh, uh, many previous jihadist-inspired or um, jihadist-involved uh, attack plotting. Uh, all right, team, I'm going to hit a break here. 888-900-3393 on the phones. Back in just a few minutes. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Hey team, welcome back. Uh, I I say the left's fascination or fixation, much better word, fixation on Russia and all things Trump and Russia just continues to to boggle the mind. Trump is not the start of this evil Russia. Putin, for eight years of Obama's administration, Putin was doing exactly then what he's now. The only thing that has changed, the only difference is their belief that he that Putin involved himself in the election. And that is his unforgivable sin. All the other stuff, all the human rights stuff and authoritarian tendencies, they're jealous. They wish Obama could get away at the same level of authoritarianism as uh, as Putin did and does uh, still continuously. And yet here we are, face the nation here. You've got Vice President Pence getting uh, getting the usual media treatment on moral equivalency and Russia and Trump. Here's what he said that there was any moral equivalency in the president's comments. Look, uh, uh, President Trump uh, uh, throughout his life, uh, his campaign, and in this administration has never hesitated to be critical of government policies by the United States in the past. But there was no moral equivalency. What you heard there was a determination to, to, to attempt to deal with the world as it is, to start afresh with Putin and to start afresh with Russia. Look, we face it is not uh, un it, it, it is not unprecedented nor is it unfathomable that the administration wouldn't want to come into office and begin antagonizing Russia right off the bat. Did Obama come into office antagonizing major geopolitical players right away other than our allies i mean other than countries that we actually like and are friends with um, was the obama administration taking the posture that they were going to be really hard on iran i mean you go back and look at the iranian uh, the uh, effectively aborted iranian uprising at the very beginning of obama's time in office there was no uh, there was no sense at all that obama wanted to uh, call out the crimes of the Iranian regime. Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, they just, well, they, they twittered while Tehran burned. I remember reading a piece that that was the title, and I thought, yeah, pretty much. That seems to me more or less to, to say it. That seems to be a, a clear way of putting it. 
but here, here we are. They're always trying to push the administration into a corner on Russia. And I'm not obtuse. I'm aware of the fact that Trump seems to have some fondness for Putin. Bush had a fondness for Putin, should be noted. And Obama had a fondness for telling Medvedev, who's just a Putin stand-in, that he'd be more flexible with him in the future. Uh, but on the issue of Russia, there is no level of hawkishness that the Democrats won't go to. Uh, they took that whole Hillary Clinton loss very personally. And I just want to note, that's what this is really all about. It's not about national security. It's not about trying to find ways to bring us together in a bipartisan fashion because this is about the sanctity of democracy. They are upset. They are upset because Hillary Clinton lost. They think that Putin had a hand in it. And that's why all of a sudden they are demanding denunciations. All right, team, we'll hit a break. Back on your side. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey team, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you as always. And I uh, wanted to get into some discussion of uh, the, the media as we often talk about here on the show. We often discuss the media. You know, this is also when occasionally I'll have somebody who will point out to me, hey, aren't you a member of the media? And I want to say to them, is, is that really your position? First of all, why is that? interesting in, in the context of this conversation who, who really cares if I'm a if I'm a member of the media I can't criticize the media and how should I refer to the media as though I because I'm a part of it I can't talk about it this is this is nonsense but you'll see this uh, thrown around sometimes by those who are desperate to avoid some of the very clear conclusions that I think a lot of the American people have come to about the media in recent months and that is that it's every bit as bad as we think it is. They are every bit as partisan as we have thought they are for quite some time. And that when you look at the Obama administration and the way the media love them so much, now you see the opposite, the sort of equal and opposite reaction of the media to Trump. They just hate this guy. Uh, they absolutely despise him. They cannot stand him. They want nothing to do with him. And... Or they want to take him down, I should say. It's not that they want nothing to do with him. They, they just want to destroy his his presidency. But they recognize that it can't be that partisanship that is uh, completely naked and is obvious even to the most dim-witted of viewers is not effective or not as effective as it could be. A much more effective way for them to go about all of this is to try and uh, hold themselves up, hold up the mantle of journal, big J journalists, you know, people that are taking a truth-first approach to all of these issues that come up. Now, when you look at the way that the Obama administration uh, continued to handle itself, despite the fact that it had all sorts of, uh, you know, there were, there were problems, there were promises, there were lies, and they never really had to deal with a hostile press corps. 
the whiplash that I think many of us feel from seeing a, an openly, adamantly, and virulently hostile press corps is something that that is hard for any of us to a- avoid looking at it and saying to ourselves, wow, uh, they really do have a complete uh, hatred of Trump, and they're just not honest about who they are, what they're doing, and everything else. There's just a lack of core honesty um, when we're dealing with these media types. I also never understand, I, this is a digression, I know, but you've got someone like a George Stephanopoulos, who I think signed a $100 million contract with GMA. Now, Stephanopoulos is a Clinton loyalist, a Clinton insider, gave money to the Clinton Foundation, worked in the Clinton White House, as you know, and he's able to put on the journalism hat without saying, I'm a Democrat. One of my favorite and funniest things that would happen at CNN sometimes when I was on contract there is they would say to me, well, or they'd say conservative political commentator Buck Sexton and political analyst Van Jones. Oh, I'm sorry. So Van doesn't have a political perspective. Van is just the facts, right? He's just the truth. I'm a conservative political commentator, so I am tainted with partisanship. But they have these other people that they would have on whom are ju- who are just given the mantle of, well, you know, we're, we're the good people. Uh, we, we come with the facts. We come and speaking the truth. And another thing is someone like a Stephanopoulos, how they, how they command these salaries, how they make this kind of money, you'll see this over and over again where some news media figure, because in the news media, you are the only thing that makes you not replaceable, quite honestly, is audience that supports you, supports what you do, right? So the only the only reason I have a job, I mean, the only reason that I have any value in the media landscape really is because of Team Buck. I don't have senior executives at big media companies that want to write me fat checks and elevate me. I have you. And you know that this is my life's work now. This is what I do day in and day out. And I love what I do. And I try to do as much research and bring as much insight to the table every day as I can so that all of you listening, whether you're in school or you're uh, at home or you're at the office, in the car, wherever you may be, are getting something, getting value for your time. And and all I ask from all of you is that you join me and you're part of the team. Right? This is this is our relationship. It is a it is a close and and um, sacred thing. And for a lot of the media personalities out there, though, for the Stephanopoulos of the world, they have a different setup, a different situation, and that is that they um, are protected from on high. They have very powerful people with huge checkbooks that run legacy media institutions that maybe they're losing audience but aren't going anywhere and can reward them for being good little soldiers for the left, not really soldiers, you know what I mean, for being uh, good little partisans for the left with huge fat paychecks. You want to be in the news media and you want to have a summer house in Nantucket or do you want to be in the news media and be editing your own videos in your studio apartment by yourself and, you know, trying to build listener by listener. Uh, I'll be honest with you, the way I'm doing it's a lot harder. It'd be a lot easier if somebody's like, well, we just like you and we're going to build you up from within our enormous institution with tremendous reach. And if you stay around long enough, we're going to write you some really fat checks, even though you're totally replaceable and nobody would have noticed if you're gone, but we like you. Those are the two ways to make it immediate. You either have a following or you're protected from on high. And Stephanopoulos is somebody who is protected from on high, which ties into his politics. That's why I'm talking about this. He knows that he's got to do his best to 
uh, hurt and uh, hobble the Trump administration. But putting on the big J journalist hat sometimes is the most effective way to do that. So so you had Trump saying that the judge that uh, overturned his order, Judge James Robart, was a, quote, so-called judge. And Pence, who's out there getting grilled about all this stuff, uh, sits down with Stephanopoulos. And here's oh, Stephanopoulos, pearl clutching right now, of course, because this is the most horrific thing ever. It's terrifying. How could anyone do such a thing? Here's what Stephanopoulos said. Is vowing to overturn that order. This morning he called it a ridiculous order from a so-called judge. So-called judge. Is it appropriate for the president to be questioning the legitimacy of a federal judge in that way? So the answer to this, of course, is no, that there's really no way for um, the Trump administration or for, for Trump to be doing this without getting criticism for it. And I understand why people are critical of it. You shouldn't call the judge a so-called judge. I also want to point out that I don't really care all that much. It does not really matter to me that Trump did this. Um, when I say it doesn't matter, sure, criticize him for it and say that it's not really the tone you want in a president, but it's not going to change the way Trump speaks about things. We all know that. And Pence, who does exude a certain level of chill, and in that sense, I think he is a very uh, sensible vice presidential pick and vice president, vice president, I should say, for President Trump, because he is very unflappable and he just exudes a sense of like, hey man, we're chill, like it's all good. Like he just makes you feel like how angry can you get about something or how bad can things really be if you have Mike Pence there sitting down and saying it's not that big a deal. So I think Pence is kind of like the cooler. If you remember from Roadhouse with Patrick Sweet, he's I think he's called the cooler because he chills down situations in the bar. And Pence is kind of like the cooler for the Trump administration. So here's his response to this uh, question from Stephanopoulos. Trump's made it clear that our administration is going to put the safety and security of the American people first. And the executive order that he put into effect was legal, it was appropriate, and our administration is going to be using all legal means at our disposal yeah, to challenge the judge's that, order. But is, is, is it right for the president to say so-called judge? He already knows the answer to that. Is it right for the president to say so-called judge? Um, no, I mean, the president shouldn't say that. But is it also worth the media all sitting around and, and just hammering home this point constantly of Trump says things in a way that they find uh, ob- obtuse or they think he's a ruffian or they think that he is in some way, um, you know, not uh, communicating in a, in a way that's befitting of the president of the United States or the office of the president of the United States. And so the exchange then sort of goes on a little more. Doesn't that undermine the separation of powers in the Constitution written right next door? Well, I, I, I don't think it does. I think the American people are very accustomed to this president speaking his mind and speaking very straight with them. And it's very frustrating when, when scholars on the left and the right, people as distinguished as Jonathan Turley of George Washington University, have said while he doesn't agree with the executive order, he recognizes the president has the full authority to put the security of the homeland first in determining who comes into right, but this, this country. Judge but to see a judge actually- so there we have it. He's saying, yeah, look, this is the way Trump speaks about things. And for the record, what he did is legal. And I, I think it will be upheld as legal, whether someone likes the policy or not. That's different from whether it should be overturned by a judge. But we have all these activist judges. And I know this is where someone would say, but Buck, this judge was appointed by Bush. OK, well, 
so there are plenty of judges that have been appointed by Republicans in the past who have turned out to be left of center. And on this issue, I'd like to see some explanation, which we certainly haven't gotten yet, of why it is not legal. Foreign nationals do not have constitutional rights outside of the United States. That is just a fact. That is just a reality. Um, but if we're going to talk about undermining the separation of powers, I do think that it's worth taking a little step back in time and remembering what that was like when Obama was the president. If we're going to be all clutching our pearls, all so upset about the way Trump speaks about things, this was back in, I think it was 2010, in front of, uh, this was the State of the Union address with the Supreme Court sitting right in front of him. President Obama does the following, says the following. Reference to separation of powers. Last week, the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations, to spend without limit in our elections. So you had Alito there saying, uh, it was caught on video, not true. And he was right. That's not true. And now you get into the Citizens United decision, and which is something that people who have never read and don't even know the basics of will act like Citizens United was the beginning of the long, dark night of fascism that we've had to suffer through and that we are suffering through now in this country. And Obama, as the commander in chief and as the president, calling out the Supreme Court in that way, calling out a Supreme Court decision to their faces. You want to talk about undignified and unpresidential is disgusting. It really was. And it was the, the classic Obama gets away with things because the media is always in his corner moment. And I, I just want to see, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. Find it for me. Find me the clip. I want to see uh, where George Stephanopoulos is calling or called Obama out on that issue and said that it undermined the separation of powers and that it was undignified and unpresidential. You know what's unpresidential? Obama for eight years acting like every opponent of his on every political issue is acting in bad faith and is either a liar or an idiot or both and creating enormous straw man arguments to tear down without ever really taking a moment to grapple with the reality of what the other side is saying. Uh, that's unpresidential. That's problematic for a lot of us. That's irritating. Um, and and uh, yet, because Obama had a, a really a pseudo-eloquence we were supposed to always be treated with this deference and respect. Oh, it's amazing. If you've heard Obama, he's so brilliant. He's such a genius. Yeah, the guy, like a lot of talented actors, if you give him lines, he can deliver them well. Off the cuff, he's deeply unimpressive. Uh, I mean, I'm just your your humble radio servant here. Uh, in an open debate between me and Obama, he wouldn't stand a chance. Without his notes and without the ability to you know, have somebody else writing for him off a teleprompter. The guy is not that good off off the cuff or on his feet. He's just not. But we were always told he was a genius and he was so brilliant. And you just see the disparities in the media. We're going to keep hitting them because I think it's important. It, it gives important context for what they're saying with Trump and how they're treating him because, yeah, I agree. Sometimes there are things that Trump says, and I'm like, I wish he wouldn't do that. But they always blow it out of a portion. They're always crying wolf, and I'm going to hold them to account for that. All right, team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
Houston. Hey team, welcome uh, back to the Freedom Hot. So uh, a couple of bits of business here. Uh, today will be the first day where you will notice this because the first day we're doing it, uh, where I will be on from 12 to 2 Eastern. So we're going to scale back our noontime Freedom Hut to two hours uh, for the for the weeks ahead. And my uh, friend and colleague Chris Salcedo is going to be picking up that third hour, which is great, uh, great for Chris. And uh, I, I know he's going to do a fantastic job. And um, you know, it's more, more time with the Salcedo swarm. Uh, so that's the way it's going to be here. Uh, 12 to 2, I'll be on. And then uh, at night, every night, 6 to 9 Eastern, I'll also be on the Blaze Radio. So I'll be doing five hours of radio a day. It also may mean that I sound a little more subdued at noon just because I don't want to blow my voice out uh, early on in the day and then at night be speaking with a hoarse voice. So if I sound at all subdued, you'll know why. Um, but that's the plan for now. So 12 to 2 Eastern uh, every day here, Monday through Friday, uh, the Freedom Hut continues on. And then the three-hour night show, uh, the uh, Buck Sexton with America Now, nationally syndicated, that will be on and you can listen on the uh, iHeartRadio app, iHeart app uh, or also download it on iTunes. Please do download it. It really does help. So, uh, team, as you can hear, my voice is pretty much back. It's still a tiny bit shaky, but um, I'm very thankful that you were patient with me last week. I'm sorry that I was out. Uh, tonight, please join me. It would be great to have as many of you as possible. 6 to 9 Eastern, uh, Buck Sexing with America now. Listen on the iHeart app, or if you have a station in your area, you can listen there. Until then, my friends, Shield Time. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.